So let me ask you a question. Are you living in your power? I mean, your feminine power, that is. We are simple and complex, oftentimes misunderstood our feminine energy and the power of it, and having to define it often and explain it or even contain it. Well, today I could not think of a better way to ring in the new year and the new shift of this podcast than a candid conversation about Frida, what she represents culturally within the realms of creativity and identity, art and sexuality, the complexities of who she was, her resilience and boldness and courage. That's what we're talking about today. And I'm so excited. So as we move forward, please be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for supporting me and listening. Be sure to listen at the very end. I have some information, exciting information to share with all my subscribers. So be sure you do that on the same listening platform you are on right now. So today I'm speaking to the digital director of the Oprah magazine, Ariana Davis. She's an adjunct professor at NYU. She's an author. And we talk candidly about her new book, What Would Frida Do? A Guide to Living Boldly. She shares how she harnessed the fearless and creative energy of Frida. Ariana discusses how she boldly stepped into her vision and her purpose in life and deciding to become an author. And this authentic conversation about really living your truth and working towards your goals and taking care of yourself in the midst of it all. We talk about the book, obviously, it's so fascinating. So be sure to check the show notes for that information. And I'm really excited for you to hear from Ariana. So let's get to it. Frida, it's interesting. This is also something I thought about a lot with, you know, writing a book about Frida is a, such a big, a major icon for Latinas in just in history and for all of us. But it was something I thought about as the, the realities at the end of the day, I'm not Mexican, right? I'm Puerto Rican. I'm also biracial. So it was something that I thought about as I was, as I was working on the book. And so I made sure to always try to just like do my due diligence as much as possible when it came to like making sure I was researching her and her Mexican heritage and why that was so important to her and all of those things. But for me, I think, you know, to be honest with you, the idea for the book came from the publisher. They actually, an agent reached out to me because they were looking for someone. They had this idea for a book that they, you know, they thought that it would be a great moment to release something about Frida and her legacy. And they were looking for the right writer. And they had heard, they had followed my work for some time and they had heard that I was a really big Frida fan. I've been like a lifelong, she's just someone that I've always been, fascinated by since the first time I saw the Freedom movie with Selma Hayek. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was sure. um, yeah. when I, I think I was in like, I want to say I was in high school and I saw that movie and I just remember from then on, it kind of just became like this fascination with her and her life and her art and just how ahead of her time she was. So for me, she just always has been she's just kind of been a symbol of like living your life boldly, you know, from I, I had different, like I have Frida t-shirts and I have, I've read so many biographies of her and anytime there's like a Frida exhibit in New York, I'm like, you know, one of the first people to go see it. So it's been a lifelong interest in her, but it wasn't until, you know, this agent reached out and they had heard through someone I used to work with that I was a big Frida fan and they wondered if I'd be interested in working on something around her life. And for me, it was just an honor to even be considered and then to work on it as a Latina woman. You know, she was someone who during the time she grew up in and the times that she was from, you know, she was born in 1907. And so, and she, you know, came of age in the 1930s, really. And that was during a time when 
women, much less Latino women or Mexican women at the time, were not encouraged to be bold. They weren't in, encouraged to speak up for themselves. Some women didn't even have the right to vote still. I mean, if you really think about it, she was just so far ahead of her time. And so I was really interested in just drawing inspiration from how daring she always was and how empowered. Like she just was such a a bold figure way before women and women of color were encouraged to be that way. So that's the long answer to your question of just, you know, I've always been really, really interested in her. And so for me, the identity piece of it is something I thought about as I was writing it. But another thing that I think we forget is Frida was also biracial. Her father was, you know, a German man. Her mom was Mexican-American with indigenous roots. And there's little pieces of her own I think the fact that she so passionately really embraced her Mexicanidad and the fact that she was, you know, this Mexican woman and she really embraced her mom's indigenous roots, that was a choice that she made because that was how she wanted to identify. And Mexico is the country that she loved. And she shied away more from her father's German roots. And she even, people don't realize her birth name was actually spelled Frida, the German spelling, F-R-E-I-D-A. And, you know, she dropped that later in life because she didn't want that association to her German side. So even with Frida Kahlo, who is so, you know, we think of her as like the symbol of being, you know, Mexican woman, you know, she also had her own struggles with identity, I think, in her own way. So that was also interesting for me to dive into and explore as I was working on the book. You mentioned something that was really key is this sense of living boldly. I know it's part of your title. And, and so here we are in a time where it's calling us forth in so many different ways. I know there's lots of association with Frida and how she was bold in back then. And you're, you're talking the 1930s for a biracial woman. And so what can we learn from that? What process did you take to shift and change that you can find connection with to Frida? What I was looking to do is exactly what you're talking about, which is looking at the legacy of someone like Frida Kahlo and going through her life, which is a lot of us know the very basic story, whether it's from the movie or just from, you know, pop culture and just knowing that she was this troubled artist who had disability, who, you know, had a very tumultuous marriage, right? We know some of those basic things, but there's also so much of her life from, you know, the fact that she was proudly feminist. She was also proudly communist. She was also proudly, she embraced her Mexican identity down to the clothes that she chose to wear every day. So she was all of those things you know, way ahead of her time. And so what I tried to do with the book was really answering the question of what would Frida do in ways that we could apply it to our own lives now in 2020. So it's kind of the way I describe it is it's like part biography and part self-help in that it goes through her life by theme. So every chapter is about a different theme. So creativity, love, heartbreak, sex, identity, friendships, it goes through all the different elements and, and phases of her life while also then, you know, so tells the story, but then also there's like sidebars and ways that I as the writer feel like we can learn from those things that she went through and apply them to our own lives. So for instance, with creativity, you know, I talk about how the reason why Frida became the artist that she became was really out of her pain, was out of being stuck in bed healing from a terrible accident that she went through when she was 18. And channeling that boredom and pain and discomfort into self-portraits of herself that would become her signature throughout her lifetime. So I talk about in the book how, you know, what we can learn from that is that no matter what you're going through, like there's a way to channel those feelings into something creative. It may not be a, you know, a portrait because maybe you're not a painter like Frida, but maybe if you're a writer, it goes into your writing. Or if you are someone who just, you know, there's a lot of other channels that you can 
take what you're going through and turn it into art as, as Frida would have done. So I, you know, I try in with every chapter of the book to kind of look at different parts of her life. There's a whole chapter on heartbreak and getting through all the things, you know, the roller coaster marriage that her and Diego had and just looking at the lessons that we can learn from that. And of course, there is no, you, we, none of us would really want to emulate the relationship Diego and Frida had. It was very complicated. It was very toxic. But at the same time, there was one lesson, you know, the one positive lesson is that she, you know, she loved fiercely and she loved passionately and she was unapologetic about her love for this person, even though the rest of the world was like, he's so ugly, he's fat, he's a, you know, he's the, they used to, people used to call him the elephant and the dove. He was the elephant and she was this dove and people were like, girl, what? But, you know, at the time she... <laughs> That was who she loved and that was what she wanted and she was, you know, steadfast in that. And so there's a lot of different pieces of her life that, and a short life at that, she was only 47 years old when she died. So the book really just tries to go through, you know, just to go through each of these different categories of her life and the lessons that we can learn from them now in this in this time that we're living in. So you are the digital director of the Oprah magazine. And so how did you get there? Yeah. So I guess, spoiler alert for the kind of, I guess, name of this podcast is that it was never really a shift for me because I always knew I wanted to be a writer since I was like eight. I'm one of those rare people that always has known what they wanted to do since I was a kid. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that I was affirmed in my, you know, love of writing and reading as, as, as a young kid. I remember, you know, I was young, but it was a breakthrough moment for me where I remember I wrote a story, I think I was in like third or fourth grade and I wrote, you know, it was an assignment about writing a short story and my teacher called my parents and I think it was maybe at a parent teacher conference or something like that. And he basically was like, this kid has talent. Like she is like, you know, a writer beyond her years. And I remember my parents telling me that and you know, at the time I was young and I was like, that's cool. But like, I do remember that that was kind of the first seed where when it got, you know, when I would get older and I got to like high school and things like that and people would ask me what I wanted to do. And I would just say like, I think I want to be a writer because it was something that I knew I was good at and I had been told I was good at. And I was always, as a kid, I always had my nose in a book. I've always loved to read, starting with like the Babysitter's Club series on. I was just always obsessed with reading. So I knew at a young age that I wanted to, to be a writer of some kind. And when I went to college, I decided to study journalism because, you know, of course, being a writer was always the goal, but being an author is not necessarily like a career track, right? So I thought, you know, if I'm a good writer, maybe journalism is the thing. And I did like to, you know, read the news. And at that point, I thought I was going to be kind of like a brown Lois Lane, like a, a newspaper reporter. And so that was the the career track that I was going on. But then what I really fell in love with while in college was magazines. Uh, there was a, a lifestyle magazine at Penn State where I went called Valley and it was kind of like the Cosmo of Penn State. And I ended up working on that team and I loved just the glamour and the idea of, of magazines. But at the time, and this is something I talk a lot about now as someone who's like in the hiring field in journalism, to get your foot in the door at a magazine was just like impossible. It was only something that you know, rich kids who could really afford to like have someone pay for their apartment in New York City while they interned could do. And you had to have, you had to be highly connected. And I didn't know any brown people who were in magazines. And so for me, it was this like very far away dream that I didn't really think was tangible, but it was something that as I, so I moved to New York after I graduated and I got an internship at the New York Daily News, which even that was like, you know, incredible. And I was super excited to just 
have post-grad opportunity and to be, you know, in the field of journalism. But I actually had met the publisher of Seventeen magazine when I was at a scholarship dinner at Penn State. She was the speaker. And after she got off the stage, I literally followed her to the bathroom and was like, I'm sorry to stalk you, but, you know, it's my dream to be in magazines and I would love, you know, could I get your card? She nicely gave me her card. And then when I moved to New York, I hit her up and we had lunch. And she, as a fellow Penn Stater, always was very gracious and nice and looked out for me. And so when there was a, an, an, there was a postgrad internship, which doesn't exist anymore, but, and it was very rare at the time, but there was a postgraduate paid internship at Oprah Magazine. And that was a fellow, a sister magazine at Hearst, which is where Seventeen was. And she, I reached out to her and I was like, you know, do you know who the best contact might be? Like, I would love to apply for this position. So she basically like put me in touch and put in a good word for me. And I interviewed and I got the internship at O. And that was my second postgraduate internship. And I wasn't making a lot of money and living in New York City, that's not always easy. And I had to hustle to make it work. I was also freelancing on the side and just like doing a million things to make it work. But I was like beyond, beyond, beyond happy to be there just because, I mean, first of all, it's Oprah Magazine. Second of all, it's magazines, which was just this like intangible, glamorous place I never thought I would make it to. And I just got so much incredible experience day by day. And that was really the, you know, the first foot in in the door that eventually led to my career path of, you know, I eventually got hired as Gail King's assistant at O and then I worked my way up into an editor and then eventually I left and I worked at Us Weekly, I worked at Refinery29, and then I came back to O in 2018 to launch the website, OprahMag.com. So it's been an incredible ride and I love working in media, I love working in magazines, especially have loved working for Oprah and for this brand because, you know, the whole, the whole ethos of O is living your best life and authenticity and, you know, how to help other people live their best lives. And I always say that I feel like I grew up at O and to have grown up in that kind of environment where that's your goal every day was really incredible. So that is the very long-winded answer to your question of kind of the career path. But in the back of my mind, I did always still have the dream of writing a book one day and being an author and just really, you know, I got to write a lot in my in my career. I've gotten to write, you know, essays and features and more reported stories. And I love that piece of writing also. But writing a book was always the dream and has always been something since I was a kid that I hoped I would get the day, the opportunity to do. So now, you know, putting what would free to out, free to do out into the world is honestly very surreal. It's kind of crazy that, you know, it, this is, this is something that I've gotten to do in addition to also achieving some of my journalism dreams. You actually put yourself in situations where you had to ask the question, where you had to reach out, where you had to do something. It just didn't kind of fall on your lap. There was like, who do I need to know? Who do I need to call? How do I apply for this? That kind of digging, that inquisitiveness, that sense of like, I have to create this as opposed to allowing it to just, you know, just kind of fall into place as it can, or maybe it would have, I don't know. But you know, the point of creating that action and turning it into something that's tangible, I think gives people who are looking an opportunity to really say, you know what, have I done everything that I can? Can I, you know, have I turned over every single stone to look at, you know, what it is that I want to do in life or where I want to go. So that takes a lot of courage and that's pretty bold to go ahead and, and, you know, have those conversations and talk to people and say, hey, who do you know? Or, you know, how can I apply or what can I do? What do you feel like were your emotional and um, mental pillars in the process of getting to where you are now? Because, you know, everything is not, you know, social media. I just posted something that says social media 
is really such an illusion, you know, because we see a picture and then we make an assumption, which is our fault, our personal fault. We make an assumption and then we think this person has this incredible life and everything is great and everything is good, but that's not usually the case. It's hard to show that in a snapshot or a picture. So that's why I believe in conversations because you really get to see the kind of ups and downs. So, you know, at the, you know, at the plateaus in your life or during your kind of movement to where you are now, you know, what were some of your pillars that you leaned upon to be able to say, you know what, this is what I'm going, you know, was it a mindset? Was it an affirmation? Was it a person? You know, what, where did that come from? Really great question. I mean, I think what you said is so important about social media just being one small glimpse of our lives. And I think that's something too that I try, especially when I speak to young women or young women ask me for career advice, because of course it's that like the truncated version of the story that I just gave you sounds very great, right? Like I went from college to the dream internship, to the dream job, to now writing a book. And, you know, now I have a following on Instagram and all of it sounds great, but that's not getting into the the moments that weren't so great. There was a lot of times where I remember, you know, I just, I didn't know if I was going to be able to afford to live in the city, you know, making minimum wage and barely getting sleep because I was also freelancing and writing stories on the side so that I could afford to even just work at this internship. Or there were the mo- the other dream jobs that I wanted and I applied to that I didn't get and I cried because I was so upset I didn't get those jobs. Or, you know, the personal challenges and heartbreaks that I've dealt with along the way that, you know, there's just, there's so much more to the story than like, as you pointed out, that we see on social media. And I wish that more people talked about those, those dark sides and those downsides and how we can deal with those, those things as they come up. I guess for me, the pillars, I mean, definitely my family and my friends. I think the fact that, you know, my faith and just, you know, my belief in God and, and just understanding that no matter what happens, you know, everything happens for a reason and just trying to, I think, stay steadfast in that faith and also just really believing in my purpose. I feel that I have been clear, I think the more and more that I've worked in my career of my purpose as someone who I think is here to help inspire people through the written word in whatever way that means, you know, that might not always mean at Oprah Magazine, that might not always mean through books, I don't know, you know, that could mean different ways. And so, but I think feeling confident in that purpose and knowing that that's, you know, the reason that I think that I'm here is to inspire people, even if it's just two people or in some small way, but I think staying encouraged in that way and just remembering that helps me when you know there are moments where I'm like this job is just driving me crazy like I'm just so overwhelmed and I just don't know how I'm going to get through another day in a pandemic you know I'm leading a team of 10 people we're running a website working remotely from home in a pandemic that we don't really know when it's going to end and you know it's not always easy and it's not what I had envisioned that the job would be like and you know, it's hard to keep your own morale up while you're working from home in a pandemic, but then to also keep up the morale of a team, it's, it can be, it can be tough, but I just try to stay, I guess, faithful. And I definitely lean a lot on my, my family and my friends and self-care is really big for me. I definitely am very, I try to be very tuned in with myself and to listen to my body and to my mind. And when I feel like I'm reaching the breaking point, I think I'm pretty good at being like, okay, girl, like you need, you need a break, you need a bath, you need to like put your phone down for an hour or two and read a book. Like I just, I try to just stay tapped into myself and understand when things are getting to be too much. And I just need to maybe like unplug and take a little break. You know, nothing inspires me more than someone who is authentic in their conversation and really talking about those parts. So I appreciate that. 
And I also appreciate what you said about making that transition that you are not sure where it's going to be, right? And that the level of expectation that we have held in our heads could be different. And so I think that sometimes that's the disconnect. You know, we have this certain level of how we, you know, you said, I don't know if I'll be here. I don't know if if I'm even going to be a writer, you know, and I didn't expect this to happen. You know, that level of expectation, it's not about bringing the level of expectation down, in my opinion. It's just about being flexible, about looking at it from a different perspective. So the ability to be able to do that in the midst of it all and not be so married or controlled, you feeling controlled over the position or the role and just really living your best life to who you are is really a part of growth. And so sometimes I think it's that level of expectations that we have and then it not hitting and then feeling like, what's going on? Why is this happening? You know, and just feeling complete and total lost in the situation when in fact, what you can do is just like, you know, one day at a time, like you said, it's like, nobody expected this. Here we are. I'm leading a team. We're all working together and we're just really doing the best that we can and really being present to each transition that's happened or that's happening. And being able to have conversations that help us to recover, you know, in a way that helps us to look at things differently can be the saving grace in everything. We can just look at it a little bit differently in the process of learning. So I appreciate you saying that because, you know, people looking from the outside in can see us a beautiful, you know, biracial, successful, young female woman and think, you know, working at the Oprah magazine and just think like, wow, she just has it all. I just wish that I could, you know, and the reality is, is that every single person, no matter what their title is and no matter what they're going through, has still to create some shifts and perspectives of like, you know what, I don't know what this is going to look like in another you know, five, 10 years. I'm not quite too sure. I'm just dealing with it day by day. So I appreciate that, you know, in this time, especially. So how are you, how are you dealing with the pandemic? And how are you, I know you said self-care, but how are you doing? Yeah, it's it's one of those questions where I think that we've all become so desensitized in many ways. Like now when people are like, how are you? Just like hanging in there. That's kind of like the like go-to answer that you give, right? Instead of like a real, real answer. But I feel You know, I live in a studio in New York City, which at the beginning of the pandemic was the epicenter of everything. And, you know, living alone, going through all of this, dealing with the ups and downs of the emotions. And I was someone who really enjoyed getting dressed and getting ready for work every day in the commute and going into the office and being around people and all of those things. And so then to go from that to working from and also, you know, not getting able to see, I mean, I see everyone via Zoom, of course, but like through a screen, it's just, it's just different. And so it definitely was a big adjustment. But at the end of the day, I'm grateful to even have, you know, a roof over my head in an apartment and just to even have a job. And, you know, there's so many people who don't even have those things in this pandemic. And I tried to just stay as grateful as possible. You know, it's, it's tough. My family, my parents live in, in Baltimore, they're in Maryland still. So I actually just saw them for the first time during the pandemic since I think I I hadn't seen them since February. So I went home to visit them last weekend. And it was the first time we had seen each other because my parents were a little older and they were worried about, you know, travel from New York and then going to see them with COVID. And so that was emotional seeing them again. And so, you know, I have down days. I have a lot of days where I'm just like, wow, like, I can't believe that, like, just another day where I just wake up and I roll out of bed and (laughs) and it's just like the same thing every day. And then I also have days where I try my best to just like give myself a change of scenery and, 
you know, I try to work out and stay active because especially just like sitting at your desk all day and like never leaving your house, I think is also not good for your mental health. So I try my best to stay active. I try my best to also have just kind of a separation between like, I never work in my bed. I always like make sure that I'm at my little, you know, my writing, my desk area. And then, you know, I try to have time where I unplug at the end of the day so that I'm not just constantly on my laptop and my phone all the time. And I try to check in with friends as much as possible. Um, and I also try to write. I think one of the things, one of the questions of what would Frida do that I think about is, you know, what would Frida do in this pandemic? And I think the fact that she spent so much of her life cooped up in her bed, just like, you know, many of us are cooped up in our homes right now. And what she did was that she, you know, channeled, like we were talking about all of those emotions and feelings into some of her best art, some of the art where she's most known for came out of those tough times when all she had to do was just think and sit and be with her with her art. So I think the answer to what, what would Frida have done during this time is she would have channeled all of the very complicated emotions we're all feeling into creativity of some way. You've done so many interviews with Oprah and Kevin Hart, and I've watched so many of them. And they're so light and they're so there's such a great connection that you have and they with you. And so what have you learned, right? about the human experience? What have you learned about the human spirit in the process of interviewing these big name celebrities, Oprah, Hillary Clinton, you know, Will Smith, I mean, all these incredible people that we see on TV. Now that you've had this personal conversation with them, what is there anything that you can see that is connecting us all in this human experience that we're all having? That's such a great question. And I think I mean, two things come to mind. One is that we're all humans, right? And so even like all of these big names, like the ones that you just said, it can sound like, oh my God, it's Oprah, it's Hillary Clinton, it's Will Smith. And it's very easy because of the culture that we live in to, you know, to think of celebrities and to be like, oh my God, it's like such a big deal. But I think one thing that one of the many benefits, I should say, of working for Oprah and having met her and having worked with her closely is that it remind it kind of humanized Oprah for me, right? Because it's like, she's Oprah Winfrey. She's like such an incredible name and such a mogul. And she means so much, especially for Black women. So I think for, you know, of course, the first time I ever met her when I think I was an intern, I was just like, like, I like froze. But after time, it's, you know, realizing that, you know, at the end of the day, she's a person, she's a human, she has accomplished amazing, incredible things that should be admired, but she's still a person. And so I think that that for me has helped me when I have interviewed celebrities and I just realized that at the end of the day, a lot of these interviews are just conversations. It's just me talking to another person about their life experience and, you know, what has made their life experience, what are the highs and the lows and how are they surviving during this pandemic, I think is something that we, that's been another side effect, I think, of this pandemic is the fact that even celebrities are stuck at home, even celebrities are doing interviews on Zoom and on Instagram Live because they also can't travel or especially, you know, at the beginning of all of this, it was like, I think it was a term that was thrown around a lot, but it's really true that the pandemic was the great equalizer. Like we were all dealing with the same thing in the same ways. And so I think that that's one thing that those interviews have taught me. And I think another thing is, I think Oprah herself is the one who said this on her show and it's something that's always stuck with me. And she's like, at the end of the day, the greatest lesson that she's learned from so many interviews in the Oprah show is that we all really just want to be seen. We all just want to feel like we're heard. We want to feel like we matter. She tells the story about the time she interviewed, you know, I think it was Barack Obama and even Beyonce. And when they went to a commercial break, they turned to her and they're like, how did I do? It's like even Beyonce, even Barack Obama want to want to feel like they're seen, like they did a good job. They want to feel affirmed. And so 
Um, I think about that a lot. I think that with every interview or conversation that I've had, whether it's with a regular person for a story or whether it is a celebrity, I think that most people just want to feel seen and want to feel like they matter. Acknowledgement is one of the, probably there's a saying um, that says acknowledgement and recognition is above having sex. Like people (laughs) want that more. And so it's true. It's like people want to be seen. They want to be acknowledged. They want to be recognized, you know, and that is so important to the human spirit. So I appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me and for your thoughtful questions. I know you said you're not a journalist, but like your questions were very like journalistic. Like what would free to do is available October 20th. It will be available at all of everyone's favorite booksellers. And I'm just, I'm super excited to put this baby out into the world. And I really appreciate you having me and for your support of, of me. And I feel, you know, in a spiritual way that like Nathi brought us together. And that makes me really happy. Thank you so much to Ariana Davis. I had such a great time speaking with her. And really what I loved most was about the authenticity of the conversation, particularly when she was speaking about what her purpose was. And that so inspired me so much because she said, you know, I'm not quite too sure whether it's going to be in writing at my current position or even if it's just two people. But I am clear about what it is that I'm meant to do, which is to inspire others. So isn't that the truth? When we really figure out what our purpose is, then we are halfway there and we can then allow the process to unfold organically and naturally. So thank you so much, Ariana. This is new in alignment with my call and my purpose. If you are a nurse or a frontline worker, please be sure to check out my bio for information regarding a nurses summit that I will be co-hosting with a group of gifted individuals, really. I'm so excited to be a part of the team. It's going to be a virtual retreat for nurses. And the name of it is Remembering What's Attainable. Dream, Breathe, and Release. So pass this along to your nurses, your friends, anywhere in the world. It's free. It will be, the information will be on my website. And also on my website, there's a section just for frontline workers. So please be sure that you go there and you fill out that information to get the support that you need. So as always, please be sure to subscribe. Check me out on gifttoshift.com for more information. And as always, we'll talk next week.